From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. So keep searching for the pain that you want to battle on a day-to-day basis that you want to get better at. And it, you know, you can call it a growth mindset, but to me, like I just kept looking for the thing that, that I kind of fell in love with and that I wanted to wrestle with every day. Hi folks, Justin Schreiber here. Today I'm joined by Scott Holden, CMO at ThoughtSpot. Scott took a big risk when he jumped from Salesforce to what was at the time a fledgling company with only a few alpha customers. But the bet paid off thanks in no small part to the story-driven marketing Scott's delivered over the past six years. On today's show, Scott breaks down the elements of a great story, talks about the essential marriage that must exist between creative and data, and why arguing about court cases at the dinner table as a kid has prepared Scott to do his best work today. Let's jump into the conversation. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Justin. Thanks for having me. All right, Scott. Now, we got a lot to cover in the next hour or so, but I want to start off highlighting the fact that you are no stranger to the media spotlight. So you've been trained from a very young age making headlines. In fact, I understand back in the day when Scott Holden was a high school student, he made the front page. Give us a little background on this noteworthy event that uh, allowed you to capture the headline. <laughs> oh man, you've been doing some dig, uh, some deep digging. Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in in Bennington, Vermont, and the paper you talk of is the famed Bennington Banner. And uh, I know it well. Every morning, that's how I start. <laughs> the Bennington Banner is where I get my information. <laughs> They've made the leap to digital, so you you could be doing that. I I wouldn't hold it against you. Uh, well, you know I um. So I grew up, I, I played a lot of sports uh, growing up and in high school. And the, the article you're talking about is back uh, during the high school golf championships. And um, I was uh, playing in that. For those of you that follow golf, it's a team sport in high school. So you, you team up with four other players and it's a total score game. And um, I had a bit of a mishap where at one point I hit the wrong ball uh in the tournament and i hacked it out of some rough i got up to the green it was sitting there next to the green i looked down it was the wrong ball and uh there's this moment as a golfer where you realize that and you know what the consequences are which is basically a penalty stroke and you got to go back and find your ball and there's this also moment that happens where you're like huh should should i just play this it's a very it's an interesting moral dilemma and it's one of the cool lessons of golf and why it's a great sport for kids to learn because it teaches you to do the right thing. And um, so I thought about it for a second and I called it on myself and said, guys, I, I just hit the wrong ball. I got to go back. And sure enough, like two feet in front of the big divot that I took um, was my ball and I played it in and uh, we finished the tournament and, um, you know, with that two-stroke penalty, we ended up losing collectively as a team by one. And it was, uh, it was a tough lesson for young Scott 
at the time, you know, you got a team, I felt like I let them down. And, um, you know, on the surface, it was a disappointment. But it was really interesting to see, um, particularly my coach at the time was just so proud that I did it. You know, and I think any good high school coach who's thinking about things the right way, um, you know, teaching people how to do the right thing is about as important as it gets. And so, um, you know, I think he probably had a hand in that article getting written. And um, from that point forward, the lesson that I learned from that, because I had a lot of people talk to me afterward, um, was far more valuable than I think the trophy would have been on my mantle. And, um, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a family of lawyers and the ideals of doing the right thing and morality was kind of a common uh, topic in our house. And um, I felt like I lived up to it in that moment. And that's kind of stuck with me over the yeah. years. Just for posterity's sake, what was the headline? <laughs> it was, uh, I have the clipping somewhere. It was Holden attest to mishap with honesty. All right. There you go. Yeah. That's, not a, that's not a bad headline to have attributed to you. All right. So I'm going to hit you with one of my favorite quotes. We're going we're gonna to get into a little bit of this later on. I know that Nietzsche is a favorite philosopher of yours. So we're going to will the power. We're, we're, we're coming in strong on this one, bringing out the, uh, the big guns. Uh, one of his great quotes, there is a solitude within him that is inaccessible to praise or blame his own justice that is beyond appeal. I kind of feel like you might have embodied that quotation in, in that moment. You're standing all alone. Nobody's around. You had to make the call. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, so I, I mentioned I, I came from a long line of lawyers and my, my grandfather was uh, the Supreme Court judge of Vermont State. And um, I think that just ethos, I, I'm actually the black sheep of the family. I'm one of you know, the last few generations that didn't become a lawyer. My sister, fortunately, is carrying on the torch. But um, yeah, those lessons around doing the right thing, around fair, fairness, morality, I think that was an important part of my childhood and is what led me to study philosophy in college. And Nietzsche is, uh, is one of my favorite philosophers. I, I did my senior thesis on him. And I found a lot of um, his thinking around will to power just fascinating about how human beings work. Um, to me, I thought philosophy was a, in some odd way, a more practical application or maybe, a, um, more thoughtful application of psychology. Yeah. And so studying that and studying, you know, what makes people do good things or bad things is kind of a nice segue from that golf story. Yeah. And so it, it, it was a big part of, um, you know, my, my high school experience and then through philosophy on into college. So growing up in a family of lawyers, of judges, you guys must have had some pretty good dinner conversation. <laughs> hit, hit us with one of your favorite, one of your dad's favorite cases. Like, I want to know what the Holdens were debating over the roast beef and mashed potatoes. <laughs> we certainly were uh, a meat and potatoes family. That's for, that's for <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I grew up uh, right next to a farm on a dirt road and my, my uncle owned a dairy business. Um, well... My dad was a small town lawyer, but he loved to try cases. His favorite thing to do was to get in the courtroom. And it's a, it's a, it turns out it's a fascinating topic for, for dinner conversation. He, in the early days, did all kinds of law, tried all different things, and, and eventually found he did not like being on the defense side. So he was mainly a, a plaintiff lawyer 
and trying to, you know, do the right thing by people. And um, there's so many different examples. And the one that is probably the most memorable is uh, involves his client hitting a dead moose. And uh, if you're from the New England area, it may sound a little bit odd, but believe it or not, <clears throat> moose cause a lot of accidents and they're actually a really deadly uh, animal because they're so big, they tend to go right over the, the hood. And um, so my, my dad's client hit a moose that someone else had hit prior to, um, prior to him. And rather than when he, the moose died, and rather than pull the moose out of the road, his client came along afterward and hit the moose and it caused all kinds of problems. And so it gets into the, what was the responsibility of the person before? <laughs> what should they have done? Um, and what, you know, what, what's the, you know, act of duty, reasonable act of duty. And, uh, those are the type of moral questions that came up at our dinner table. And, you know, those are the cases my dad loved to argue and, um, was pretty good at it. So yeah, I it was a lot, lot of fun chats. <laughs> I can just hear the lead in when a moose falls in the forest and, uh, all sorts of philosophical conversations ensue. I, I actually think that's great though. I mean, that is a fascinating question. I, I, honestly, one that I haven't contemplated before, but throwing those out and challenging young people to consider all the sides and debate the sides is wonderful preparation for all of the questions that we're going to face in life that don't have clear answers. And we've just got to apply our intellect and our, our moral code to figure out the way through. Couldn't agree more. So uh, I know also you, uh, you had a dream you you wanted to be flying jets at one point. Why are you not? Why are you not now up in the clouds at ten thousand feet? <laughs> uh, you do your research, Justin. I like it. Uh, yeah, I. You know, I, there are a lot of things I wanted to be when I was a kid. I did think I eventually wanted to become a lawyer. Um, uh, I thought I even after I started my business career, I thought I would go back to that. Um, I also dreamed of being a. Uh, a director and a movie maker. But the the thing that really inspired me in the high school years was that, you know, I was, I'll date myself, but I was a, a kid when Top Gun came out and oh, I yeah. had a dream as many did of wanting to go fly jets. And um, uh, I went through all of the application process to apply to the Naval Academy and I got in and then uh, they sent me a letter saying that we forgot to mail in my doctor medical records before some important deadline. And that while I was in, I would not be able to report for duty uh, for a year because they're sticklers on these, these things. And so um, as much as I wanted to go, I decided that it make more sense for me to actually go to school. I didn't want to take an extra year. And so I went to Colgate university instead. And I think in the long run that um, that probably worked out for me. But uh, I still do wonder what it would have been like to, to fly a jet. I mean, how, how could you not? The Naval Academy was willing to wait for you. You were not willing to wait for the Naval Academy. You had big <laughs> things to accomplish. All right. So you, you're, you're a philosophy major. And, uh, but in addition to that, economics. So I'm interested, uh, are you a right brain guy, a left brain guy? Wh which side wins the argument when the two sides collide? Yeah, I love this debate. And I think it's a perfect debate for marketers. Um, you know, I, I, my, my family had a lot of strengths on the legal side, but when it came to 
the financial world and the stock market, you know, they were pretty far behind. And so I, one of the, my motivations around economics is just trying to figure out how the world worked and big business worked. And so when I left college, I got into investment banking because I wanted to understand that part of the world. And um, I was always good at math. And so that part of my life uh, on the left brain side made sense. It was what made me a good banker. I was a fearless spreadsheet jockey back in the day. And so I, I always had that as a strength. But if I had to answer your question, I would say I'm much more of a right brain person. So I, I grew up as an artist and you know, I, I love to paint and you know, I, I did art competitions. And I think if I thought there was a commercial path, I probably would have pursued that. The practical part of me said I should go, um, you know, go be a banker and figure out how to make some money in this world. And it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. It took me a while of, of being a banker and, you know, I was good at the doing of the job, but I don't think I was as passionate about it. And so it took me a little while to follow my right brain dreams, I suppose, and discover this profession of marketing. And that in particularly today's day and age, I can combine the best of both. I can use the creative side to come up with cool stories and make videos. And uh, I can use the left brain side to analyze how they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've shared this insight before, but I, I was talking to one marketer and they said, if you look at the arc of marketing, um, harkening back to the, the TV series Mad Men, they said historically it was about the Mad Men and then it became about the Math Men. Mm. and now it's about the media men, this idea that you have a portfolio of, of assets and you need to blend the creative and, and the mathematics. And obviously, we need to ex expand that to the, the math men and women. But I think uh, I don't know if that would have made the title of a TV show. But uh, <laughs> but I, it, it is it is of all the disciplines very much in the center of the two brains and training both sides of your brain is is uh, a great way to prepare. You know, I had a chance to travel a lot when I was younger. And I was always fascinated to step off the train in that new country or that new city, and everything is just completely foreign. And uh, after having done that in several different places, I realized that the fastest way to figure out what makes a place tick is you have to study two things. You have to study the, the religion and philosophy of the place, and you have to study the financial economic system. Mm -hmm. Because if you can study those, those are two massive drivers that motivate all the other things that happen. And just by focusing on that, you get so much color on everything else that's going on. Yeah, great insight. I, I agree. Um, I guess that kind of shadows a little bit of my, uh, my school choices. So there you go. Uh, I don't think I was as thoughtful as you just made it sound. But, um, but here we are. Yeah. So, so you went into iBanking. Was that initially something that you were fired up about you woke up every morning and said i'm going to be an eye banker <laughs> you know um the one of the things about me that i i'm not afraid to admit when i was younger i and maybe it was just because i grew up in a small town um and i wasn't pushed i, I was i was pretty lazy <laughs> and i you know i was you know my the high school accolade i was like voted most graceful under pressure and the thing about me is I was pretty like low pulse. Like I was, it was hard to get a rise out of me. Still is, I guess. But I, I was kind of lazy and would sort of look for the path of least resistance. And what I noticed about myself is that when pressure came, I stepped up and did my best work. 
And so I think that's part of why I was drawn to the military and the Naval Academy idea that didn't work out. But then I think it came back again when I was like, you know, I, I naturally will look for the the easier path. Why don't I challenge myself? Because I, I'm proud of myself when I challenge myself and uh, pursue something that's going to push me. And so I, I fell in love with cities. I, I studied abroad in, in Vienna when I was in college. So I knew I wanted to go to a big city because I thought that would push me. And then I, I, at the time, you know, this is in the mid nineties, there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, certainly wasn't the marketing career that, that I have now available to me in my career center in college. And so I was reading about being a consultant or a banker and banking, everyone was like, Ooh, you're going to go work a hundred hours a week. And while that was true, I, I looked at it and said, that's going to challenge me and I need something that's going to push me and I'll go learn a bunch. And so I, I liked the doing, I liked the spreadsheets. I liked seeing what you know, what was going on in the boardrooms of the world's largest companies. Um, that, that experience was great. When I got to the point where, you know, I was on the uh, cusp of getting promoted to be a, a vice president, I honestly got a little scared by it. I, I was, you know, that's the point where they start giving you a, you know, five, $10 million quote at the time. And while I was good at the, at the math and the doing and the valuations, I was not excited about selling it. And it, and I, you know, at the time I remember thinking like, I'm just not, made to sell things. I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm going to be an operator. And so I made the decision to get out of banking at that point. And I took an operating job um, as a, as a business analyst for walmart.com and to actually go see how a business was run and use my quantitative skills, but to do it, you know, maybe in a way that would make me more passionate. And it was there that, um, you know, he, who knows, or she, who knows the numbers, the best in a high cost business, um, and a cost conscious business like Walmart tends to do pretty well. So I rose fast there to run logistics and transportation for walmart.com. Um, and that began my journey into kind of company building. We, you know, we grew 10 X while I was there over three years. So it was, uh, it was a heck of a run wow. and I learned a lot. And I also got exposed to marketers and product managers there. And that really was the start of my journey into kind of this modern enterprise software tech landscape. Yeah. You know, going back to your decision to go into iBanking, that definitely resonates with me. I I also tend to put myself in a position that forces me to do things that I want to do, but that I otherwise wouldn't do if left to my own volition. And right. uh, so I chose management consulting uh, for similar reasons. I knew it was going to push me. I was excited. I wanted to see if I was up for the challenge. Got into that a couple of years. I I remember... Uh, Rajat Gupta, he was the uh, managing director of McKinsey and huge influence globally, um, just in terms of the legacy that he's left. But he came and spoke to a group of business analysts, uh, among which I was I was in attendance. And he opened it up for Q&A after. And there are these brilliant questions that were being asked about the macroeconomic environment and you know, all of these different forces and factors that were going to reshape our reality. And I remember I raised my hand at one point and I said, what are, what is the firm doing about the lifestyle of the analysts <laughs> and what we're asking them to do? <laughs> and honestly, he didn't have an answer that satisfied me. So <laughs> I decided to move on and pursue other, other pursuits of that. But you, you get into it and you you quickly understand is this for me is this not for me and and you know you got to you got to try things but then you got to follow your passion you know if it's not right and then and then you got to move on and, and keep looking yeah that's exactly right and i i um 
there were parts of it that I liked the the attention to detail, the you know the precision ar- around it. But there were for various reasons I just wasn't passionate about the product. The product yeah. piece of selling you know advisory services was just not my bag, and so I kept looking. And I think that's um, that perseverance and trying to find uh, you know find the thing that you want to struggle with. You know, like I, I think it sounds like you and I both pushed ourselves to find the thing that would test us. And eventually you find the thing that, you know, you want to keep testing yourself with the most. Yeah. And for me, when I, when I eventually found marketing, I tell people it's my third career. I was like, this is it. This is the thing that I was made to do. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't looked back. It's, it's, you know, I still bound out of bed, just feeling lucky that I get to do this job. I love that. I love that idea. Find the thing you want to continue to struggle with because anything that's great in life does require struggle and opposition, but it also requires a lot of passion and enthusiasm. And that's when the amazing things happen when you have the struggle and the enthusiasm and the passion. That's Scott Holden, CMO at ThoughtSpot. When we come back, Scott shines a spotlight on the tactics Salesforce has used to become one of the most influential companies in tech and how he's put his own fresh spin on them at ThoughtSpot. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. My guest today is Scott Holden, CMO at ThoughtSpot. Earlier in his career, Scott helped build Salesforce's marketing machine. In the process, he invented some of the tactics and techniques that have become table stakes in B2B tech marketing. Let's get back to the conversation and hear more about some of the bold moves he's been making over the past decades. So you you come to marketing, you had the good fortune to land at Salesforce, and it was relatively early days at Salesforce. So we think of Salesforce as the juggernaut that is shaping the tech landscape as we speak, but it wasn't always the case. Um, You worked with with Mark Benioff. So first of all, best PR stunt. We'll, We'll start there. While you were at, at Salesforce. <laughs> yeah, I joined Salesforce when it was 1,500 people. So a couple of years after the IPO back in 2007 and was there for seven years. And I certainly got a world-class education from Mark and the rest of the, the marketing, the rest of the entire company. It was um, you know, just a phenomenal company for all the reasons many of the listeners I'm sure have read about. No, PR stunts. There were many. Uh, and I really, I think, you know, Mark was just a genius at this. And the, the one that, that I'll tell you about was the one I was most actively involved in. And I'm sure people remember this. It was back in 2011 when uh, Salesforce was invited to Open World, Oracle's customer event. And the night before, um, Salesforce's session was canceled. And, you know, I think the detail is that it wasn't, it wasn't completely canceled, but it was it was taken from a premier big keynote room and put on a distant hotel somewhere in the basement. And I think Mark saw that as, as, you know, practically a cancel. And rather than, you know, you know, lick his wounds and go home, uh, he did what any great PR mind did. He turned it into an opportunity. And he said, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to rent out uh, a big lunchroom in the St. Regis across the street from Moscone. And we're going to call all the press people we know and tell them that Oracle has canceled us. And that uh, you have to keep in mind, this is before Oracle had embraced the move to cloud computing and was still pushing mainly hardware. 
And the tagline um, that we rallied around was the cloud must go on. And we created, uh, you know, picket signs and we basically protested out in front of open world, shouting with bullhorns that the cloud must go on. And Mark did his presentation in that, uh, in that, uh, the dining hall there in St. Regis. And it, <laughs> it was crazy. I mean, we, so we had just um, acquired a company called Radiant 6 that did social media monitoring. And I remember like we were like looking at the social, like the share of voice around open world. So their customer conference and we like Salesforce was trending higher than Oracle <laughs> in share of voice at their conference from this stunt. It was just epic. And, um, you know, a ton of fun in the process. It was also fun. And like we did all this in like on a dime. You know, that's, yeah. the, that's what's fun about, you know, fast moving companies is that it happened in the afternoon. And that night we were printing signs at Kinko's and we were out there the next morning with bullhorns and picket signs. Yeah. So, you know, a, a fun story, you know, I'll always remember it as will many who are in that picket line with me. It was a lot of fun. Well, Scott, I, I remember that story. I was at Oracle at the time. <laughs> and so for the listeners that aren't familiar with San Francisco during during these massive events like Open World or Dreamforce, the Moscone Center becomes the center of the entire city. Everything converges on that couple of square blocks. And the St. Regis is a high-end hotel. It's where all the big executive dinners happen. If you're going to close a deal, that's usually where you're meeting with people. And you're right, Mark and, and the team take over the restaurant on the ground floor of the St. Regis. I actually had meetings with clients in the St. Regis. And we had to walk through the picketers to get into the St. Regis and then go up the hotel. So one, one member of my team comes walking in and unbeknownst to him, as he's going by, it might've even been you, Scott, somebody throws a scarf on him with the no software logo for Salesforce. <laughs> and he comes walking into Armenia with a Salesforce scarf. On and I go, hey, you better check yourself there. <laughs> you, you, you're giving out some some free advertising, but it really messed us up. <laughs> We're trying to get this. And that is, you're right. That is a perfect example. It probably cost you guys a hundred bucks to print the signs. You got so much PR off of that. It became the thing that everybody was talking about at Open World, which was Oracle's cornerstone event. Just brilliant. Yeah, it was uh, a lot of fun too. Well, let's talk about the storytelling as well. Salesforce has always done storytelling in a brilliant way. I know that originates from Mark and his his approach. But what was it like being on the inside and creating these iconic stories? Yeah, that that was the most fun part, and that's where that's where I really got a world class education. Uh, you know, I worked for some great marketing leaders while I was there. You know, Mark, but also George, who who's now at Twilio and Craig Swensrud, who's went on to be the CMO after George and Kendall Collins, the same. And they were, uh, the thing I took away from them and Mark is that we obsessed over storytelling. It was not like, you know, we won it. We grinded over the details of the story. And it was you know, well, why would you say it that way? Why wouldn't we do it this way? And it was refine, refine, refine over and over again. And, you know, I think mar marketers today and Mark will focus group his speeches at, at, at Dreamforce. My first job at Salesforce was actually writing the keynotes for Mark and building the slides and the presentations for Dreamforce. 
and uh, it looks easy and it may only be a few slides and, you know, a five minute pitch, but there are hours and hours that go into those to try and make them as, as impactful and as emotional as possible, even when you're selling something like enterprise software. And I think that was the thing that Salesforce got more than any other tech company is that just because it's enterprise software doesn't mean it has to be boring. It doesn't mean people don't buy with emotion. They still want to hear the story. They still want to be inspired. And Mark figured that out before anybody. And then we we ingrained that teaching and that learning into everything we did um, as as a marketing team. Yeah, I was I was responsible for Oracle's product, selling Oracle's product that competed against Salesforce. So I got really good at losing to Salesforce. But one of the things that would always drive us crazy is that Mark was changing the rules. He was changing how he defined what it was Salesforce did. And having a lot of familiarity with the market and with Salesforce's offering because they're our main competitor and knowing exactly what Salesforce did, it always boggled my mind how Mark would come up with these stories based on a technology which was um, you know, very vi- hardly viable at best <laughs> initially. And like, it was incredible though, how he could create this reality. And then you turn around and two years later, it's actually real. Yeah. Well, that, and there's, there's a couple things packed up in that. So one, um, like I, I was, as, as you were talking, I was just envisioning like version 73 of the keynote presentation, like those like almost haunting memories of like how much we tweaked and worked on that stuff. And I, I think the, the other like aha from it was that I guess I'll make two more points. One, Mark always thought big and he pushed that on everybody. And, and was it, it was a common refrain you'd hear from him. Like, You're not thinking big enough, bigger, uh-huh. bigger, bigger. And that, that spirit and that ethos just stuck with me. And that I, even today I can almost hear him saying it. Sometimes I'll look at something and I'll think to myself, are we going big enough here? And so that, that was like a, um, you know, a super, valuable lesson for me the the part about um you know it being early and like thinking bigger yeah the second point i was going to make is that i think the thing that got me so excited about that my first job there at salesforce and what i realized we were doing and why i just kind of fell in love with marketing is that we'd have this small idea right it's like oh we're and and mark was always like we're going to be a multi-application platform company we were at the time when i joined we were a one product company we were a salesforce automation product a crm product but mark told a much bigger story and through the sheer power of emotional storytelling we convinced the industry that we were much bigger than that but there was also something more subtle kind of tied to it which is that the marketing that you do you know you're trying to convince your prospects and customers that you know your product is superior that they should you know work with you as a as a company but it also has this powerful way to impact the strategy of the company itself and the people who are in engineering and the people building the product like you may have this idea some product manager may have an idea and if a marketer can help them turn that idea of a, a new feature set into a much bigger idea and a story that that more people can buy into what I found over the course of my time there at Salesforce was that we were able to create conviction and strategic direction and like give people the confidence to make bigger bets on actually product development mm-hmm. than they would have, I think, had the story not been as compelling as we were able to make it. Yeah. 
Let's talk about events as well. Dreamforce is arguably the most influential uh, corporate user event on the planet. We had a chance to talk to Julie Legal a while back about the origins of that. But what role does an event play at Salesforce? Yeah, it was. Uh, I did uh, eight Dreamforces behind the curtain, sort of a, my tours of duty, and um, just you know they're legendary now. And I, you know, they were. When I first started, it was probably a few thousand people were at the first Dreamforce. And when I left, I think we were, you know, at a hundred thousand. So just a ridiculous, you know, <laughs> turn of events over the years. Um, but everyone looks at Dreamforce and thinks of it as a movement now, which it certainly has become. And it was a it was by far the biggest closing event of the year. And it was a you know massive for pipeline creation, all the things you'd expect an event to be. What stands out to me the most about that though is not those things. The power of the event was that it it acted like a lightning strike, a just a sheer like momentum builder for the strategy and the the velocity of the business. And the what I mean by that is that when you put a date like Dreamforce on the calendar, it's not like, you know, I'll use a software analogy. You know, you're going to ship a new release of your software and like if you're, you know, everybody works really hard to get the feature on the bus. And if the feature doesn't make the bus, then it's going to make it on the next release. When you have a big event, like you have one shot a year to tell your biggest and best story or stories. And if you miss that window, you, you really do miss it. You miss it for a year. It's not like you're going to get on the next, you know, product release next month or next week. And so that forcing function just makes the company move. And I did not appreciate that until I got in it. And it just, it makes everybody work harder. It makes everybody move faster. It makes everybody collaborate and coalesce around the ideas that are important and big. And that, you know, I just, you know, as much as there were times when I was certainly in the trenches being like, oh my gosh, Dreamforce is breaking me. But then I'd step back and go, you know what? We are so much better off for this. And I, I grew to love it for what I knew it would bring out of us mm -hmm. um, the, the more I did it. And that, that definitely took some time because there were some grueling, grueling days and nights as part of those events. But um, yeah, all in there, they are just phenomenal. And it, I brought it with me to to where I am now at ThoughtSpot where, you know, we're a relatively young company and we're now, um, we've now had three customer conferences. And, you know, I wanted to do those early because I just saw how powerful they were, not only for creating pipeline and customer interest, but for making the company move uh, strategically. Right. There's a great museum. It's the Disney Museum out in the Presidio here in San Francisco. And there's right in the middle of the museum a display about how Walt organized his studio. And he's got a map of it drawn out. And right in the middle of it is the, I think he calls it the storytelling team. And then it's a hub and spoke model. All of the spokes are connected into that hub. But for Walt, it all started with the story. And as I've listened to you talk about Salesforce, it's all about the story and that event becomes a vehicle or a forcing function that forces everyone, one, to figure out what the story is, two, to get a line on the story, and three, to do it on a timely basis because now you have a hard date on the calendar and you have to make it happen. And, and in a way, the whole company is kind of built around that concept. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I, I have not seen that from Walt, but it's it. Um, I actually have a little diagram that I've made to like educate my teams on how I think about marketing. And it is a little like steering wheel hub and spoke model like that, where I put the story and the differentiation in the center. I think that's what every great 
you know, especially technology marketing team needs to do. I wrap that in brand and kind of creative and a look and feel. And then outside of that, as the rings expand, I think I start thinking about um, the technology stack and how you're going to track all the things you're going to go do to bring that story to market. And yeah. then I build little islands, kind of circles around that, which are the different distribution channels for campaigns and events and enablement and all the things that marketing teams go do. But it, at the center is the story and the brand that you build that you want to go take out to market and all those different spokes. It's so helpful to have that kind of a graphic just to orient the team. And because a lot of times it is easy to get caught up in the details of your job and lose sight of the story. But when you've got that to bring you back to what the core reality is, I think it really, it's a, it's a powerful centering function. So you got a great education on storytelling, story development at Salesforce. It sounds like that has evolved over time. What are some of the additional elements that you now add to storytelling as you talk to your team and look to your team to create, create great stories? Yeah, well, it's um, in the technology space, we're constantly evolving, right? And at Salesforce, it was like trying to become a multi-product company. And I think every technology company is trying to reinvent itself constantly so as not to be disrupted by the next new thing. So you got to keep your story game strong and be thinking ahead. And that's certainly the case at, at ThoughtSpot. And where I, where I work now, you know, we, it's an analytics software company. Uh, and our, our mission in life is to try and make the world a more fact-driven place. We believe that data makes the world better when we all have easier access to facts. And our vision for how to do that is to make analytics as easy as your favorite app. We're trying to make analytics more accessible to business people like me and you and many of the sales and marketing leaders that are listening today. Uh, and that story, it's funny, when I, when I took this job, I've been at ThoughtSpot now for, for six years, you know, I, and I saw the product, we basically have a, a Google-like interface for analyzing data. You type a few words like, you know, sales last week by region and a chart pops up and we calculate it and present it for you on the fly using natural language. Uh, when I took the job, I, I was like, this is so much different than the current products out there that are great, but they're much more technical and they're de designed for analysts. I'm going to come in and tell this story that it's analytics, it's easy for everybody. And I had a rude awakening when I got in, in the chair and I started doing some competitive research and I realized that every single other vendor that had come before me in this space had already said that. And so it, it required me to be more creative. And it, it, I remember being, man, this is really frustrating. There's a lot of snake oil that's been sold here and people have been, you know, sold a bill of goods that didn't play out. How am I going to change that? And so, um, you know, we had to really kind of shape some new narratives around the importance of why business people should not only be, you know, passive consumers of it, insights created by a data team, but should be creating their own insights and, and doing that on the fly in their day-to-day -day work. And so, you know, we came up with some, you know, ideas around um, the importance of being able to answer the next question in the moment, right? And why the curiosity tax of a static dashboard is so penalizing to business people. Because you're, you, if you're in sales or you're in marketing, you know your business. And if you see a trend going up and down, you instinctually have knowledge to be able to take that insight and apply it into a next step if you can get it in the moment. And so often we're just left trusting our guts. And if you do it long enough, that can be a good thing. But data informed decisions are always better. 
Mm-hmm. And so that being able to put the insight in the person's hands at, in the moment. And when they have a question and they look at something and they go, I wonder why that happened and be able to ask another question and drill and drill that started to bring, you know, our story to life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the image of one of the big kind of pivotal story, like we always, at Salesforce, we always talked about, um, the cracks line, which is that we would talk about technology being on one side of the world and your customers on another, and you need a technology to bring it, bring them together. And that crack slide became a running joke where people talked about their like defining positioning for, you know, how we told the Salesforce story. And at ThoughtSpot, we had, you know, we've created a, a, a bottleneck slide where we talked about, you know, the billion knowledge workers hungry for data and, you know, the million data analysts in the world that are out there trying to crank away to get it to them. And you just have this big bottleneck in the middle that, you know, technology is not serving. And that's where, you know, we were able to step in and, and offer them some help there. And so, yeah, like kind of flushing out those stories in a way that kind of goes a level deeper than just, we're, we're so easy, anybody can do it. Yeah. You know, tell me how. And then the, I guess the last point I'd make on it is that, um, you know, we introduced this category called search and AI-driven analytics. And we could have said analytics, it's easy for everyone, but that would have, that was clearly taken. And so the bet we made was that search and AI are both two incredibly hot technologies. And particularly with search, Google had done so much to make search, um, you know, synonymous with easy that we leaned into that. And we said, you know, by leaning into our core differentiation, our search product and messaging that and messaging that consistently, that would do more to build our brand and to tell our story and give people the insight into how we're different than if we said super easy. And that was not an obvious choice in the beginning. We spent a lot of time kind of thinking about it. And so even, you know, just now we're, we're actually starting to play with some new, some new story arcs, but that's been a very consistent message, search and AI driven analytics for the last five years for the business. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. That idea that when you create a great story, it takes about three seconds for it to be ripped off definitely <laughs> resonates. That, that is just the reality <laughs> of storytelling. If your story cuts through, it will connect with an audience and then it will immediately be copied. The, the good news is, though, I think that especially in the day and age that we live, people recognize the difference between an authentic and original story and, and a derivative piece of work. Apple does a wonderful job of this. And, and I, I did an interesting research project on Apple and how they tell their stories. They invest an incredible amount of time in telling a clear, compelling story using language that is emotive, uh, you know, the retina display. But in addition to that, it's how they tell it and where they tell it. Apple will always tell their story in premier places. Um, and the way that they tell it will be beautiful. You're never going to see a back alley. Um, an old beat up billboard uh, with a lousy piece of photography and an Apple logo. And those are all subliminal cues that tell the audience, we value who you are and we, um, we're, we're going to be thoughtful about your time interrupting you. We have something important to say. And because it's important, we're going to demonstrate through all of these other, uh, these other um, attributes that it is in fact something you need to pay attention to. Totally. I mean, and that's where the, that's where the power of creative and brand and wrapping that around your story to 
to do that signaling, I think it's so important to say that, you know, you matter to their, to your customers and that, you know, you deserve the best experience possible and the, the highest end experience. And, uh, yeah, I think that's, what's really differentiating a lot of the technology companies today. So when you came to ThoughtSpot, it was not a slam dunk. Tell us a little bit about the company, uh, the first day that you walked through the door and why you took a, took a risk on it. Yeah, I, um, so I, I mentioned I've been at the company now for six years and I joined right after the Series B round. We were about 40 people. We're now uh, a little over 600. And so it's been an, you know, an amazing journey. And it's, you know, the, I tell my friends that it's played out exactly how I thought it would, which is in and of its own right, crazy. <laughs> because anybody who's been around Silicon Valley long enough knows that it rarely does that. And so I, I feel super lucky that it's kind of played out the way I, I thought it would. Uh, but when I re rewind the clock and I think about showing up on day one with 40 people, we had just closed um, our very first alpha customers a few weeks prior to kind of while I was interviewing. And uh, one of those was Walmart, where I had worked before and where I had lived through a lot of the pain of many analytics tools. And that that gave me a lot of conviction when I saw ThoughtSpot for the first time, I had the reaction so many of our customers and product prospects do, which is, where have you been all my life? Mm -hmm. This, this is this is the thing. And yet at that, at the time, there were three three customers paying kind of, you know, early friends and family type deal. And then the I get into the seat and the first quarter I'm there, we do zero. And so I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm like, it, 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 we can only go up from here. <clears throat> and so, um, yeah, that, that, that reality. And like, when I tell that story to my friends, they're like, I can't believe what a risk you made. And, you know, it's, it kind of sounds that way. But when I come, when I looked at the product vision and I combined it with my experience of using all the products and I thought about the story and I looked at the, you know, we had seven technical co-founders, data's hard. And we had these just brilliant minds, four of them came from Google. And then we had this amazing culture. I was like, you know what? Like, this does not feel like a risk to me. And and it, at the time, it just seemed like a really good bet. And it was a bet that I was willing to make. And it's, you know, it, it's played out as as we thought it would. But um, yeah, if you thin slice it and kind of look back in time, it does seem a little crazy, especially to leave such a big successful company like Salesforce to do something so small. I caught up with Carlos De La Torre recently. He's the chief revenue officer of Trip Actions and was at Mongo before that. He had a great formula. He's, he's picked a lot of winners in his career. And he said, really, it comes down to three things. Number one, you need to find a massive market that's ripe for disruption. Number two, you need to find a compelling vision for how to disrupt that market. And number three, you need an amazing set of people who have the intelligence and experience to pivot when it turns out that vision isn't exactly what's required. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's, um, I could not agree more that I think that's exactly right. I looked at the analytics market. There's been many massive companies, you know, Salesforce just bought Tableau for $15 billion. But if you look at all of, you know, the big players, it, you know, there's been many big companies built and it's, data is only increasing in importance. And so that part made sense. The vision made sense to me. The people made sense. And then, yeah, to your, to your point on the pivoting, you know, the big move that we're making right now is into cloud. And, you know, we see ourselves as, you know, the modern analytics cloud. And that, you know, in, 
in the analytics world, believe it or not, most big companies, we started out selling primarily to the Fortune 500 companies of the world, the Walmarts, the Verizons, the Hulu, these, you know, big companies with lots of people, lots of data. And uh, the breakthrough is that in analytics, analyzing your core assets, your customer records, a lot of that stuff still lived in on-prem databases. And, it, and a lot of the analytics tools as a result were really slow. And so we had to do some innovative things in the early days and we were selling software. And it's only now in the last couple of years where we've, we've sold a, a SaaS product. Mm-hmm. And that's opened up our whole market to a whole new world of companies, um, you know, many who are probably listening today where we weren't really designed for the mid-market prior to this move into the SaaS world. And now we've kind of changed our entire go-to-market motion to be able to embrace this, you know, the benefits of SaaS that we all know and love now. Yeah. So over the course of our conversation, we've heard a lot about Scott, the philosopher, the creative ideas, the storytelling. There is an iBanker in there, though, as well. I want to hear a little bit about the data-driven operation that you're running at ThoughtSpot right now. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, I love this part about it. And this was, this was the one thing when I left Salesforce, Salesforce was such an amazing, um, you know, sales and marketing company. It, and it was, it was always up and to the right the whole way. And one of the things I saw is that growth was able to hide a lot of pains on the back end. So our technology operations and infrastructure, we, there were a lot, there was a lot of bailing wire going on behind the scenes. And I, when I took on the CMO job at ThoughtSpot, my thought was, I want to I want to create a world class operations backend to go with the great storytelling that I know we'll figure out how to do, and um, and that meant I I ran Salesforce so Salesforce the architecture of it and the implementation is run through us, and then I view myself as patient zero of ThoughtSpot. You know I was and continue to be one of the very first people to use the product. I use it every day. I love it, and I've never had insights at my fingertips like I have with this product. And so that plays out in some pretty interesting ways, which is, you know, I mentioned that we're a 600 person company. I've got a little over 30 people now in marketing and we do not have a data analyst on the team. And if you talk to my peer group, um, you know, a lot of them might say, I've got, you know, a few Tableau developers over in some faraway country that are putting, pulling information out of one system and into another and doing a whole bunch of spreadsheet work on the side just because data just turns out to be hard. Mm-hmm. And in our world, we don't have any of that. Everything is directly from our source system. So I look at Salesforce data. I look at Pardot as our marketing automation data. I look at our website data. I'm now pulling in data from our advertisers and I've got you know Google Analytics and I all of that's now in one product. And I don't have, I mean, I have we have a da- one data engineer for the whole company that helps us set up the infrastructure and then the interface for getting insights is so easy that we don't need an analyst to build dashboards. If you go look at the dashboard that we run our board meetings in, the author is me. You know, I, I created these insights and we present directly from the product to the board. And that plays out across the team where I have you know, field marketers who are trying to figure out in their regions how their collective set of account executives are doing. They're building their own insights and they're looking at them and collaborating with them with the regional directors, the salespeople. And there's just something magical that happens when you have, to my prior comment about the business knowledge meets the insight in the moment, mm-hmm. where you have the people empowered to go, oh, I wonder why that campaign did well when I, this other one didn't. 
and you're talking with the people that can change it in the room. Mm-hmm. And that I see every day where people are like, you know, I think, you know, that that campaign looks good on the surface, but actually when you look down funnel and see how it's converting, it didn't do as well as this other one. Let's choose the less obvious one. Yeah. And those insights coming from people like, like I feel like one of my field marketing leaders said that to me the other day. And I was just like, this is what it's all about. We have non-data people finding these amazing insights in the moment that weren't weren't possible before. And yeah. um I, I, I like empowering the team to go find those on, on their own. And there's, you know, this construct of having them being active users has just changed the game for us in terms of, you know, how we run the business. I love it. I love it. Well, Scott, it's been a great conversation. Let's wrap up with one final question. Uh, as you look back over the arc of your life, if you had to boil it down to one thing, what would you say is that one thing that's made the biggest difference for you? I'll hit on the point we, we made before, which is, Keep looking for that, that thing that you want to struggle with. So keep searching for the, the, the pain that you want to battle on a day-to-day basis that you want to get better at. And it, you know, you can call it a growth mindset. Um, but to me, like I just kept looking for the thing that, that I kind of fell in love with and that I wanted to wrestle with every day. And I think that kind of, you know, growth mindset tied with sort of trying to look for that next thing has fueled me. And it's made all the choices I've made and, and made the work that I do when we all work a lot these days satisfying. And I think that's been kind of the key to my career arc to date and what I'd recommend others keep looking for. That's great advice. Well, Scott, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure, Justin. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.